I'm just going to read from Revelation 2, uh, verse 1 to 7, the letter to Ephesus. Uh, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among you, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this I have, yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Um, first off, I just want to say I'm glad for the devotional yesterday. Um, one of my big worries going into this was that I'd be like super proud and that I think that I'd say something super profound or new. But it seems like Julio already preached on the same thing yesterday, um, or similar idea yesterday, um, meaning less glory goes to me, which I'm glad for. Um, so yeah, often when we talk about revival and the need for it, there are a couple common reasons I hear for why it's needed most. Of this list includes the LGBTQ community and pro-choice. I've heard people often point to, at least in America, people point to the left as the reason why, to Democrats. A week or so ago, I was on my computer and my brother was nearby listening to a video of what I'm guessing was a pastor praying. He started by praying for Florida and the hurricane sweeping through there. And then he prayed that God would, like a hurricane, sweep through our nation and send revival. And he made especially sure to emphasize the major reason for that was because of the liberal left agenda. As he watched this, he scoffed, this being my brother, who's an unbeliever. Um, and I sat there feeling both worried that he'd think that that's what we do here when I go to prayer meetings, that's what we do, but also very frustrated, being because it almost gives across this implicit, but we Republicans, we're good, we don't need revival, we are the revived. Um, as well, mainly that the main focus in that prayer for why we need revival, I think is, is very wrong. Commonly, people use the verse, I often hear the verse, 2 Chronicles seven fourteen, and my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray, and I will hear from heaven and will heal their land. But then it just really brings to mind, why, why does it seem like we read stuff like that and then think the main reason we have, don't have revival is because of them out there, the unbelievers, the false prophets. Um, and what I've read of revivalists throughout history, but especially in the Old Testament, it starts with the Israelites repenting of their own sins. Never do I say, hear them praying something, giving the message of God save us because those Gentiles out there are really committing really bad sins and, they're doing even worse things than we thought them capable of. Or a center Bible because those false prophets are attracting so many people to, this, to their heresy. I, I, I don't really ever see them pointing the finger at them, or at least it's not what they do first. Um, it's always repenting over their own sin, how they've set up idols, for example, and how they've transgressed God's law in various ways. For example, Israel during the time of King Josiah, the high priest Hilkiah found a scroll containing the law in it. Uh, now we can see the Holy Spirit was very present and tremendous power already because simply reading the law once, Josiah was greatly grieved and that he tore his clothes. He knew the wrath of God was on the people of God for their continued disobedience and worship of idols. 
now it, it seems like there are so many who will be so quick to say God send revival because those unbelievers are so wicked and the false teachers are so popular. And just to clarify, yes, we should absolutely pray against those things. We should pray, uh, you know, that God would not allow such wickedness into our country, um, that God would, you know, prevent the false teachers and prophets from being so popular. But that's not the main reason we need revival. Personally, I, I don't think revival will ever happen until we, the church, stop pointing the finger at everybody else, just based on biblical examples we have. Not to the world, not to the false prophets and the Christian cults and those who follow them, not to our family or even to others in our church primarily, but to ourselves first and foremost. Um, here in Revelation, these are letters of Christ to the various churches at the time. Uh, this one being to the one at Ephesus. It's interesting to note he points out some good first, and after the exhortation mentions more good things. The church isn't the worst in every aspect. God is working there. Multiple times we see they reject false doctrine, whether it be of various unmentioned false prophets or this group called the Nicolaitans. And this group, if we read some of the other letters later on, seem to be very convincing even to the believers in the other churches. Um, so it, it's a commendable thing that they reject this false doctrine. And, and it seems like they have really good doctrine. But here's the negative. They've lost the first love they once had. How, how true is that to churches represented here? We all have the right doctrine. We have such a history of godly pastors and authors like the Puritans. But that zeal, that, that drive for God that we once had and that we read about the Puritans having, it's just not really there. Um, but even more so to our churches, how true is that about us individually? I know I've lost that first sale. And I've heard people mention before the idea that this first love is kind of like a honeymoon phase to a marriage. It'll last for six months to two years. And that super strong love dies out, and which is neither a good thing or a bad thing. It just is. And you got to power on from there. And now maybe it's true that it dies out in most people. Um, but I ask you this, if it wasn't a bad thing, if it wasn't something that should be repented of and, and we ought to seek to prevent, why would Christ say that's something he has against this church? Like, like it's the big primary fault of this church is that they've lost this first love. And, and so I, I think there's high reason to say that it's very much a negative thing, that we ought to seek to restore that first love for ourselves. Um, just to be clear, I'm. I'm not talking an emotional thing because that's not what zeal is. Um, zeal is a strong drive or passion towards a certain goal. Nothing about that is focused on emotions. We're not praying for emotions, but a restoration of that drive to serve God, fight sin, pray, and reach the lost. That first love to just enjoy God like we used to, to not being so double-hearted, but serving God and not idols. <laughs> um, as I was driving through Grand Rapids, just to preface, I'm not from there. I'm, I live in a small town in our way. But I was driving to a prayer meeting, and there was a decently heavy downpour. Um, I endured it for a bit, but it got really heavy. I hadn't made it halfway to GR, so I thought I'd turn around and head back because the roads are getting freaky to drive on, and I didn't want to drive an hour home in the night in rain like that. As I was driving back, literally a minute since I started heading back, the rain stopped. I could have turned around, but I'd given up. And I resolved to go home and joining, you know, and not joining. 
But as I drove back, it reminded me of my spiritual life. I remember days in the past where on my drives, you know, our drives on the highway, uh, to church or prayer meetings, but it seemed like 60 to percent of the drive the rain was pouring down so heavily i couldn't even see 20 yards in front of me it was just rain the highways were far scarier but i didn't care i wanted to go to these places so bad to which i knew would draw near to god trusting he would also draw near to me i would pray to god for safety so focused on driving i couldn't even be scared because i was so focused it reminded me what my christian life was then versus now there used to be such a zeal to grow closer to god i didn't care what i had to go through I trusted God to keep me safe, and I pushed through, making it there even if the rain never really let up the entire drive. Now I drive, and once the rain pours down 50% of that, I give up so much quicker. No trust God to keep me safe, and there's just not the strong drive to push through. Um, and even then, when I, when I gave up, I turned around. The rain immediately stopped, and, and it didn't really matter because really what was preventing me from going was I just didn't have a heart that wanted God like I used to. And that, that's really why we're here. Um, praying for restoration of our own zeal. Because, again, I don't know about you all, but I, I've lost that drive to seek God first and, and to want him above everything else. We can so easily think we're going to be like King Josiah and the three in Daniel 3 because we won't bow down to the world's idols and stuff, but we do. Maybe we do good and not bending out to the big idols or, or things of the world, like again, the LGBTQ community and pro-choice. But we have our own idols. We may not bow to a, a huge statue in Babylon, but even worse, we keep idols in our hearts. And these idols take up far more room in our heart than some 90-foot statue did in all of Babylon. But then in Revelations 2, we have this scary warning if we do not seek to restore this first love. The church of Ephesus is told their lampstand will be snuffed out. Again, we know this doesn't mean they won't be saved. Um, because it seems like reading the letter, they are saved. Because how can you lose a first love if you never had it in the first place? But it means the church will cease to exist. Or, um, I'm still unsure as to whether that means the church will be scattered. or the church will just become so ineffective, so powerless, that it will be as if they didn't exist. They, they have no power in the neighborhood around them, in their evangelism, in their preaching, in their prayers, in anything, um, because they just continue to seek after these idols. God leaves them, as it were, um, kind of similar to what happens to Jerusalem and Ezekiel, which I'm reading through now. Um, God in his mercy may be patient with us for continuing in this for so long, but he'll bring this judgment on us if we don't repent and turn back. Not those liberals, not those Joel Osteens, or those in the church who aren't saved, or those who attend, don't attend the prayer meetings, but to us, ourselves, we, ourselves. Um, it may also become lukewarm in that we become dull to hearing and listening to instruction from God's word to abandon sin and sinful attitudes. Um, God may convict us of our sins in our life, but we ignore it and justify them. So we grieve the Holy Spirit. Um, Proverbs 15, 23 says, he who disdains instruction despises his own soul. But he who heeds rebuke gets understanding. And then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24 to 26, something really interesting. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. 
So I did not run aimlessly. I did not box as one beating the air, but I disciplined my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. That last part really surprised me. We, again, we know he's not talking about being unsaved. Um, but, but he's saying even he, Paul, could be rendered an ineffective Christian, saved, sure, but useless to God for the growing of his kingdom and the glory of God's name. And yeah, if even Paul can get to that state, surely we can too. And then it just, you know, do we want that? Do, do we want to be like that? Or, or ought we pray, repent, and throw out these idols in our life? But, you know, all that said, to those of us, there is hope. There's mercy. The God's wrath is hot against Israel in Josiah's day. So there's mercy shown on Israel when they removed the idols. Um, I think for us, maybe what this could look like is having a heart that no longer wants these idols. Because again, our flesh can gravitate towards these things, but we, we, our heart does not want them. Uh, and we seek to discipline ourselves to fight these sins, trusting God keeps us from it. Um, finally, let's just pray honest prayers to God. Um, whether that be here or, or in private. Let's not hide sin. Let's confess our sins to God, not making excuses or justify it. Um, if it would be best, if you know, it would be wiser, confess your sins one to another, that you may be healed, like James says. Now let's pray like Habakkuk in chapter 3, verse 2. Lord, I have, I have heard the report about you, and I fear. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath, remember mercy. But Jeremiah weeped over the unrevived Israel in Lamentations 5, verse 21. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. You know, praying that we, God would restore that, that first love we had, you could say, of old. You know, we've messed up big. But we have a God who is merciful, who's willing to revive us just as he did in Josiah's day. Yes, survival is God's work, but for us believers, repentance over sin, I think, is, is, you could say, is ours. We have a responsibility in it. Um, I just want to finish by reading Isaiah 41, 17, verse 20. Um, I came across this passage in our prayer meeting um, that I asked you all to pray about a while ago. Um, this just really kind of stuck out to me. Uh, the, <clears throat> let's see. The poor and needy seek water, but there is none. The tongues are parched with thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I'll open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I'll make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I'll put the wilderness in the wilderness, the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I'll set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together, and they, that they may see and know. We consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Let us pray that God would do this work in our own souls, that our dry and barren spiritual life would be changed so drastically, everyone will see that the only possible explanation is that it was God's doing, bringing no glory to us and all to God. Uh, that's it. Um, yeah, let us pray. Lord, we thank you that we can gather together to pray like this. We ask, please, God, that you would forgive us of our lukewarmness, of our pointing the finger at everybody else 
shifting the blame, not wanting to, to have the humility to take responsibility for our own evil doings, our own actions, or even to say that revival is primarily our fault or the lack of revival is primarily our fault. Because we love to think that somehow we're almost a degree better because we go to prayer meetings like this, but we're not. We are no bit more deserving of your grace. We are no bit better in your kingdom. So we ask, please, God, that you would start by reviving us, um, that you would revive this prayer meeting, that we would pray with burdens on our hearts, not just some cold, shallow thing. Help us in our spiritual walks with you. Again, for we have grown cold in many ways. I've grown cold. God, we don't want that anymore. We don't want to be so focused on these idols. We, uh, I was reading Ezekiel 6, 16 earlier today. It's Ezekiel in general. Lord, the judgment you, you brought on, on Jerusalem, on Israel on that day for their idolatry. It, it's scary to read about how they'll cry out for mercy. They'll cry out, Lord, what have we done? They'll cry out, God, forgive us. And you say, you will have no pity on them because they know what they did. We ask, Lord, please, that, you would not, that that would not happen to us, that we would not be rendered ineffective Christians, powerless Christians. Sure, we're saved, but we just blend in with the world. We ask you to prevent this. In Jesus' name, amen.